of Psalms, which actually is comprised of five books. And so we're in book two of the five books of the Psalms. Sermon series is called The Songs of Our Savior. They were sung by Jesus, and we should sing them as if they are about Jesus. That'll be, I think, true yet again today as we make it to the 54th Psalm. This Psalm is ultimately about Jesus. To give you a heads up of how I want to land the sermon, let me ask two questions. First, for those of you that maybe aren't familiar with Christianity, you've probably already heard in our worship service today that when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Have you heard that today already? A lot of times when I pray, I, I kind of bookend my prayers. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come and I present my prayers. And then at the end, I close them with, and in Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Well, why do we do that? I think Psalm 54 is going to help us out. So if you've ever been wondering that, or if you're a Christian that's like, well, no one's really asked me like that. I just hear it all the time, and I just do it because that's what everybody else does. My hope is that today's sermon, as you think about the name of God, the goodness of it, the power of it, and the person that that name represents, none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, in Jesus' name we pray. That'll take on just significant meaning for you. Second question, what does the third commandment have anything to do with this topic? Do not take the Lord's name in vain. One Christian leader put it this way, isn't that a strange command? All the other ones seem kind of serious. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't have other gods, don't bow down to idols. Oh, and by the way, don't cuss. You know, you're on the freeway, someone cuts you off, don't say God's name. Is that really what the third commandment's about? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. No, in short. So let's turn our Bibles to Psalm 54, a song about the goodness of God's name. And let's think deeply about this topic. And by the end, my hope is that both of those questions will be answered for you. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? And what does the third commandment have anything to do with this topic, with prayer, with your everyday life, with our church? A lot more than just cussing. Psalm 54, we'll begin with a little superscription. That's the setting, the context of this psalm. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskil of David. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Verse 1. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. 
The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. May he write its truth on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. In order for us to understand this passage, I like to give you one simple big idea. And today it will be a question, and we will answer it in three ways. But the last way will be the definitive answer. That's the outline. I'm going to ask a question. We're going to answer it in three ways. Each of them will build off of each other. They don't contradict each other. But as we build, finally and climactically, the third will bring this whole message hopefully together. Question. When does prayer become praise? When... Does prayer become praise for David? And then, because none of us in this room are David, the king of Israel, he's dead. How does this prayer of David instruct us so that our prayers can become praise? When could that happen for you, me? Question is, when does prayer become praise? Answer number one. Prayer becomes praise When you turn and ask God to save, it's pretty obvious. Verse 1, O God, save me by your name and judge me, or the essence of this is vindicate me, but literally it's judge me because I know if I'm being judged right now, I will be vindicated. If the judge comes down from heaven and he judges, he's going to see I'm innocent. I'm innocent of what is going on in this circumstance. So save and judge, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. David is turning to the Lord and asking God to save him. God will not be praised if David turns to himself. David would be praised if he was delivered by his own wisdom, strength, or might. Why would you praise God? You praise David. David turns to the Ziphites or Saul and tries to make a deal with them. Then either it's his wisdom or their mercy. Then you could praise Saul and the Ziphites. Or he could turn to another army or nation and then he could ask them for help. David does none of these things. He turns to God to ask God for salvation. God will only be praised when he does the saving. God will only be praised in your heart and in our church when he saves us. So who's doing the saving in your life? Who's the one that deserves the praise? For the big things and the little things. For your salvation? Forgiveness of sins? Who's who's getting the praise for that? How about persevering for another day? Through the dark and gloomy clouds of anxiety, depression, the struggles of a marriage? Are you turning to God and asking him to save you? 
Prayer will become praise when we turn to God and ask him to save us. This is very much one of those passages that repeatedly I thought, it's a, it's a greater and lesser kind of argument. Let's take the greater, more extreme circumstance, and then let's compare it to your, I'm just guessing, lesser circumstance. Superscription. First lines in our text says this prayer was written, and he is asking for saving and judging when? When? When the Ziphites snitched on David and told King Saul where David was hiding. Now, Kenny just came up a second ago and read for us a little bit of that passage. So, again, if you want to read that in fuller context, read before and read after. We heard about this two weeks ago, and we heard about Doag the Edomite snitching out on David. For a long season, David is running for his life because the man who is currently the king of Israel wants David to die because David has been selected by none other than God to replace King Saul. That's the backstory. That's the context. The greater to the lesser, none of us here are kings. And as last time I checked, none of you have been appointed and elected as to be the next president of the United States, king or queen of Israel, or Israel, England, wherever. So this situation is of greater amplified significance compared to anything I think you could think about in your life. Or just put it simply, how many of you right now really and honestly are saying, and I don't mean this cynically, I know a very, very few of us might actually have people giving us death threats. It, it does happen. I don't want to belittle that like this reality could actually be your literal reality. But I know a lot of you. I have not heard in nine plus years of pastoring Embassy Church somebody saying, Pastor Phil, I have people snitching on me at work and telling some sort of mafia mob boss where I live and then they're going to come kill me and I need to go move and hide. Can you help me? It's never happened. That's what David's talking about. So you're anxious and you're worried legitimately for probably some things that are overwhelming. But can we just for the sake of argument argue from the greater to the lesser and say David in this circumstance turns to God, asks for saving and judging, and says, God, save. And it's only because of that that the psalm ends with praise. So if David can turn to God in prayer in this situation and it result in praise, I just think how much more when a church member shares secrets that you shared with them confidently and then they gossip about it with other church members. Can you in that situation turn to God and say, God, will you vindicate me? When you have a next door neighbor that calls the police because they have a grudge about you being their neighbor and they want to get you in trouble. When a coworker tells the HR department that you need to be fired because they keep forgetting to use your preferred pronoun. When a close friend or family looks at you in the face and lies to you. I, I don't know, what's your situation? What is your trouble? Can you imagine a more difficult or dangerous circumstance than what David's dealing with? The fear of impending death? The hurt of betrayal, the injustice of wicked men around him, 
Questions and doubts of what will the next day bring. The struggles of feeling lonely and abandoned. All of that encompasses what David's going on in his life right here at Psalm 54. So I encourage each of us to answer the question this way. Prayer will become praise when we ask and turn to God. God, save me. It begins with prayer. It ends in praise. That's our psalm. Second answer. When does prayer become praise? Not just circumstantially, moving from the greater to the lesser. When does prayer become praise for David? After God answers the prayer or before? So here's answer number two. Prayer becomes praise when... By faith, we confidently know God will save and hear our prayer. Prayer becomes praise for David, not when his circumstances change, but prior to the changing of those circumstances, he's already praising God. Look very carefully with me. Verses 6 and 7. This is the way the psalm ends. With a freewill offering... I will, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Did you see the two I will statements paralleling each other? In the future, I know, I am confident, I will be giving praise to you. And almost as if it already is beginning now because of his confident faith and trust before the deliverance comes, He's saying, I praise you. I thank you. And then, notice the for in verse 7. F-O-R. Because is another translation of this same word. For or because. I will give you praise. I will thank you for your good name. Because, this is what's incredible. He has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Two options, here they are. Option one, this was written, verse six and seven, after the fact of David being spared and saved. And if you read 1 Samuel chapter 23 and keep going, you'll realize God did, in fact, answer David's prayer from verse one and two, and did deliver him from the hand of Saul, and then David did actually become the king of Israel. Praise the Lord. So option one is that he started writing this psalm, and then he, after being delivered from the Lord, finished the psalm, and what we have it is it now is kind of like before and after. That's option one. Option two, this is the majority view, this is your pastor's view. I believe that this superscription says when He was in trouble. He prayed to God to save him from his trouble. And by faith, because he beheld the glory of the Lord in verse 4, he confidently trusted that the Lord would do what was right. So then verse 7 is declared, and this is the way the, the scholars talk about it, is prophetic future. You look at something into the future, and because of your faith, you know that it's going to happen, and you act as if it's in the past or present. Oh. I think you all need to learn that skill. This is amazing. What if your life was lived on the reality of future victory 
screaming into the present or in the past. He already has delivered me so I can praise him. That's the logic of this passage. Let me quote one scholar here. He says, the perfect tense, and this is grammatical, nerdy stuff, but the perfect tenses in verse 7 denote not that the deliverance has already been accomplished, but that David has confidence and faith that they will be, and therefore this is the reason he gives for the thanksgiving in verse 6. End quote. I agree with this author. I think that's the logic of Psalm 54. So our question is, when does prayer become praise? Not only after you get the amazing miracle answer. Even in the middle of the waiting for that answer. Even already now, after you prayed and you don't feel any better, you can praise the Lord. So next week, you can come back to church even though the prayer that you're asking hasn't been answered fully the way you hoped it would. And you can give thanks to the Lord because of a confident faith in him hearing your prayer and ultimately doing good to you and the whole world in the end. That's the theological basis of this prayer. That's how someone can be sustained in any and every trouble. And I don't mean that just based off of, well, if he had a terrible trouble, I mean that based on the literal words David uses in verse 6 and 7. One more time, look down at verses 6 and 7. I will praise, I will give thanks, because he has delivered me, and then notice the language, from all or every trouble. It's as if he's not even talking about his present trouble. He delivered me from the men that were trying to kill me. That's a specific trouble. He's saying, in the future, I will praise because I know that he will deliver from all and every trouble. How more all-encompassing could you get Embassy Church right now for you to practically and personally apply this to whatever trouble you're dealing with? Literally every trouble. And that's why I don't want point one to feel like, man, I should beat myself up because if David's pressing on by faith and he's got people trying to kill him, how much more of a loser am I that I can't get through another day and I'm just feeling sad? Your trouble is legitimate trouble. The question is not how big or how little it is. It is when will that turn you into a prayer warrior that then turns you into a praise giver? So whether how big or how little your trouble is, and as legitimate as those troubles are, we don't need to go around belittling each other's troubles. It's a real trouble. Let's turn to the Lord so that he can get the praise. And then as we wait and as we trust, let's praise him because we're confident in his deliverance. Question, answer, Number three, when will prayer turn to praise? Answer, this is the answer. This is what the other two things are ultimately pointing us to. Not just when we turn to the Lord, and not just when we trust in the Lord, but when we behold the goodness of God's name. That's the ultimate underlying reality answer to everything. 
All your prayers, all your life, your understanding of the whole Bible. When you behold the goodness of God's name, then your prayer will turn to praise. So on your handout, if you came into the church service, you should see an outline in a little box of this psalm. The way that this psalm is structured, and this is a basic snapshot of what several different Bible teachers and scholars would suggest and argue, is the way this psalm is structured. First two verses are about prayer. Lord, God, hear, answer me. And then notice the key word Shem in Hebrew or in English, name. I'm praying according to and on the basis of your name. Now parallel that with the last two verses. I praise you because of the goodness of your name. And then here's the interesting little tidbit. Our English translations say, for he has delivered me, which is absolutely fine. Good translation, it is not incorrect. Literally though, grammatically speaking, you would say, for it has delivered me. I think that's more faithful rendering of verse seven. It has delivered me. What's the it? What's the it that delivered David? From all of his troubles, what is the it, friends? It's his name. So we begin with a prayer for God's name. We conclude with a doxology praise because of the goodness of God's name. And it will be because of that name that he will be delivered from all his troubles. That's it. How does his prayer turn from a prayer to a praise? Well, the center verse, verse 4, is, Behold, God is my helper and sustainer and upholder of my life. Which then, notice the contrast between the way verse 3 and verse 5 flip the situation around. It went from, God save me because I have enemies pursuing me. They're trying to kill me. And just to make sure we're all on the same page here about these enemies... Two weeks ago, we we looked at Doag the Edomite. Edomites would have been rival enemies. Ziphites were people from David's own tribe, neighborhood, family. Betrayal. He got snitched out not by Doag the Edomite. That's kind of understandable. It's, It's like my own family member, my own tribesman, my own countryman was the one that went and told Saul. Those are the people that are seeking to ruin David's life, destroy David's life. It's very interesting, isn't it, that he calls them strangers? Because they do not set before them the Lord. God is not before them. This is probably why when New Testament Christians read back the Old Testament, they say, not all of Israel is Israel. Some Ziphites do not keep God before them and set their gaze on the glory of the one true God. Therefore, they act like ruthless, evil, wicked men, and they snitch out on their own tribesmen to get them killed by a horrible dictator king, King Saul. I mean, we're talking about, again, extreme circumstances, but when he beholds, doing the very opposite of what these people are not doing, they're not setting before themselves always the Lord God, David says, behold, set before yourself 
the glory of God as helper and sustainer. He upholds my life. Boom! The psalm just kind of crescendos down backwards of the way it was built up. Now he says, I am confident that he will destroy my enemies. Instead of asking for prayer, he's turning to praise. Do you see the flow and the structure? God's name, save me. I've got enemies pursuing me. So I will behold the power of God's name and his character and his goodness. And when I do that, I will think very different about my troubles. I am now confident that they'll be destroyed. I am now going to praise his name. There you go. There's Psalm 54, as clearly as I can teach it to you. Now do you understand why I said, what is the answer to our question? When does prayer become praise? When verse 4 happens. The whole psalm turns on verse 4. Your, your whole life and troubles can radically turn if verse 4 happens to you when you behold that God is your helper and sustainer and that his name is good and that he will save and that he does hear. That is the God that David believes in. Do you? And is that reflected by the way that when troubles come, you're casting upon him all of your concerns, your burdens, and cares. And turning to him because you're confident in his name, in his character, in his goodness. He cares for you. David does. And he is trying to instruct us. That's what maskil means right at the superscription. It's just to teach you. Teach you about when prayer becomes praise, that's for sure. But teach you about the name. The name. Isn't that an interesting way for David to pray? Look at verse 1. He says, God, save me by your name. It's a weird way to talk. I want to just admit it. You and I don't typically talk this way. And it's also weird to say, I will be delivered by it. We normally would think the way this translation is. I'd be delivered by him. No, the name is a synonym for God himself. The name represents all that God is. I have a silly name. My name is Philip. It means lover of horses. God has an eternal name. It's amazing. His name is Yahweh. It means I am. It's a verb. It means to be. This is why it's translated in the Greek, ego ami. I am who I am. That's who God is. And when the Exodus story happens... Moses is wanting to report back to the people of Israel, who should I tell them sent me? And he first goes to Pharaoh and tells him, Yahweh, I am who I am. He sent me. And Pharaoh says, who's Yahweh? Never heard of him. Who cares? Friends, this is where the name of God theology begins. In the book of Exodus. And what's interesting, and the reason why I'm bringing it up, is because you should read through carefully the interaction between Moses and Pharaoh, because he says, let my people go, and he says, why? Because Yahweh said so. I don't care about Yahweh, so no. And then there's this back and forth, and then each time Moses says, God will bring down these plagues and his wrath, and he will judge, and he will save. Oh, that's verse one, isn't it? Judge and save. Judge and save. So that... All the world will know, not just the Egyptian Pharaoh or all of the Egyptianites, so that the whole world will know the name of Yahweh. 
And as soon as God judges, and the evil that is promised in verse 5 is a picture of the evil that happened to Pharaoh. What did, what did Pharaoh do to the children, the firstborn? Do you all remember this? There's a leader, a human ruler, that takes young baby boys and throws them live into a river so they drown to death. And he does that again and again and again to try and weaken off the people of Israel. So the Lord God in his justice takes the firstborn of Pharaoh. And Moses, the one who is the deliverer, was in a sea of reeds or you could say a reed basket because this would foreshadow the poetic justice of God returning evil for evil and it would be the reed sea or the sea of reeds that Moses is delivering God's people and saving them through over and over again our psalm I think screams exodus is in the background God will save, and God will judge, and he will deliver evil, and he will return evil on their heads, the very evil that they did. They get what's coming to them. And all the world will know Yahweh is the one true Lord. So let's go back to our opening question. What's the significance of not taking the Lord's name in vain? Is that really just don't cuss? The Ten Commandments are given right after this story. The people of Israel have been delivered. They have been saved from the power and the might of I am Yahweh. That God has saved them. And Moses is on a mountain and he says, I want you to tell these people, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, no other gods before me. Therefore, do not have any other idols that you bow down and worship to. And therefore, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Take is not about speaking. The word is carry his name. The word is to lift up. It's actually the word that's so fun to remember because it sounds and looks like NASA. NASA. To lift up or to carry his name. Meaning they were to be set free, saved, and judged so that they could go around and carry the power and the might and the goodness of Yahweh. They were to represent for the rest of the world who this God was. And they were to do that by obeying these Ten Commandments. So taking the Lord's name would have been like, you're marked now. You have this invisible tattoo on you and it's, I'm now chosen. I'm now adopted. I now have a new name. I have a new identity. And that identity is Yahweh's. I'm not my own anymore. I'm definitely not King Pharaoh's. I am now free. I was a slave. Now I'm free. That is what it means to take on the name of Yahweh. So don't misuse the name of Yahweh by living like he's not your God and master and Lord. Are you starting to see how all of this comes together? If not, you need to fast forward all the way to the New Testament and you need to realize that repeatedly Jesus Christ becomes Yahweh saves. Go to Matthew chapter 1 and you'll see in verse 21 that Jesus is given the name Jesus because it is the name of God, Yahweh, and it means Yahweh saves. You shall name him Yahweh saves so that everybody will know that this man who is being born into the world by a virgin will be unlike any other man. He will be Yahweh in a human body and he will save. He will crush evil. He will judge the wicked. He will return evil on their head because they will pierce him to a cross. They will 
attack him, his own people, just like David, will snitch him out, betray him. And all of that will come crashing down on each of them as they reject Yahweh who saves. So then when you and I are told, do you believe in this God? You're told to get baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you're instructed by Jesus himself that when two or three gather in his name, then he is then among us because we're carrying not just the name on our lips. We're carrying him. So get baptized in his name, gather in his name, and go make disciples to the ends of the earth, telling everybody about the goodness of his name, and lo, I will be with you to the end of the age, because his presence is in his name, and his name is on us. Fast forward to the book of Revelation, and you'll see a church that is given a new name, and all of that is activating all of what you're hearing from Exodus through Psalm 54 to the New Testament Or one of my favorite, Philippians chapter 2. Equality with God is not something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a human, not just any human, but a servant slave. And he humbled him to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him, do you all know how this finishes? The name above all names, so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? This is what Christians pray in Jesus' name, and we don't take the Lord's name in vain because we bear the name of Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. Baptism, discipleship, prayer. I mean, we've touched on how many categories now? Do you see how this phrase, the name, is activating an entire storyline of Scripture that if you get to know the goodness of God's name and do what verse 4 says, behold. Look deeply, intently, repeatedly. Look hard. What does his name mean? What does it represent? What does it imply if he's really who he is, the eternal God who is and never had a beginning, the beginning and the end? That's who I'm praying to? Yep. So I have this momentary light affliction. I should turn to that God. I should bring to him my prayers. I should cry out to him. And then perhaps as I behold how good he is here to care and to answer ultimately and climactically in Jesus through the resurrection of the dead, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the promise that everything that's been said in Psalm 54 will literally come true one day. You can praise him now as if it's already here today. I think that's the only way to make sense as a New Testament Christian to read Psalm 54 and actually believe that verse 6 and 7 could be ours. A prayer in a time of trouble whatever that trouble may be, to the God of the universe who is in the name of Jesus will dispense his very presence in the Holy Spirit so that you and I will be strengthened and encouraged with reality, ultimate reality of the God who is. And when you behold that, 
You're going to think about the troubles a little different, just like verses 3 and 5. And you might, I think, be led to praise him and thank him. When does prayer become praise? When you behold the goodness of God's name. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus we come. For there is no other name by which man can be saved. Or as Etienne just mentioned earlier this morning, silver and gold we do not have to offer at your throne, but the name of Jesus we do have. So we come as poor, broken beggars. We come with nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. We come in the name of Jesus, as adopted sons and daughters, with a new name, the name of Christ, seared across our foreheads, tattooed across our wrists. The mark of Christ is what marks us out. We pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would come down afresh on all of our troubles. And that through the teaching of Psalm 54 and the goodness of your name, we would walk worthy of the calling to represent you well in this world. And we would carry the name of Jesus very specifically by when troubles come, trusting and believing that those troubles will come to an end. Oh God, give us faith. Help our unbelief. Help us to realize that in this brief moment of time, there is an eternal weight of glory that is waiting to be revealed and has already in parts been revealed through the gospel of Jesus. So we just plead and beg. I do on behalf of all of these people that are sitting in front of me, knowing intimately and very acutely how many of them are dealing with troubles. And so we come back to those words of Jesus in John chapter 16 that Jenny read for us when she said, from the words of Jesus, in this world there is many troubles, but take heart. He has overcome the world, and anything we ask in Jesus' name, the Father will give us. We ask now in the name of Jesus. Amen.